Hello to everybody. Welcome to Hudson Institute. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody here in the room and uh, especially welcome our, uh, our colleagues from Israel who are participating via Skype, uh, Admiral Ayalon and Admiral Horev. Um, and uh, also our audience that's uh, tuning in via the internet because we're live streaming this, uh, this event. Uh, I'm Douglas Fife, a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute. And uh, from 2001 to 2005, I served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the George W. Bush administration. In, in a world full of important and rapidly transforming regions, none is more strategically significant and wildly volatile than the Eastern Mediterranean. Consider, for example, the changes in Turkey's foreign relations and its domestic policies. Consider the disintegration of Syria. Consider the rise of ISIS and other Islamist extremists. Consider Israel's booming economy and its potential to become an energy exporter. Consider Egypt, which is still in the, in the throes of multiple political revolutions. And consider Libya's civil war. And that's far from a complete list. Today, we're going to discuss how such changes in the region affect Israel, and in particular, require Israel to take maritime strategy more seriously than it has in the past, and how the United States and Israel can work together better to advance common maritime interests. Uh, now, everyone in this panel here in Washington and in Israel, I'm going to introduce everybody in one second, um, served recently as a member of the Commission on the Eastern Mediterranean that was co-sponsored by Hudson Institute and the University of Haifa. Those two institutions are launching a program of joint research on the Eastern Mediterranean, and the first project was this commission, which produced a report on security and energy issues in the Eastern Med. The commission was composed of 10 uh, experienced people from the government and the private sector, including the former chiefs of the U.S. and Israeli navies, Admiral Gary Ruffhead, who's here on my left, and Admiral Ayalon, uh, who's coming in via Skype, but I don't think we have the, uh, his video. It, it, he's just connected uh, on the audio. Um, in addition to the the five people on the panel, and I'll get to the rest of the introductions momentarily. The commission included the former chair of the U.S. Senate uh, Energy Committee, Mary Landrieu, uh, the former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Ron Prosser, Hebrew University Professor Emeritus uh, of Economics, Eitan Shishinsky, the former CEO of Noble Energy, the company that developed Israel's uh, offshore natural gas, Charles Davidson, and the historian and Hudson Senior Fellow, Arthur Herman. The commission report 
on security and energy is available on the websites both of Hudson Institute and the University of Haifa. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, let me, let me uh, mention that the, our uh, colleague here on the stage to my left, uh, uh, to Admiral Ruffhead's left, is uh, Seth Cropsey, who is um, my colleague here at Hudson Institute as a senior fellow, and he served as the Deputy Undersecretary of the U.S. Navy. And on the screen, you see uh, Admiral Shaul Chorev, um, who was the deputy commander of Israel's Navy. Uh, after that, the head of Israel's Atomic Energy Commission, and now heads the Research Center on Maritime Strategy at the University of Haifa. Now. Uh, about the, our commission report, I will, our, our focus today is going to be on security. I, I will just mention, uh, just to do a little justice to the fact that the report also dealt with energy, I'll mention briefly a point or two that it made about energy. Um, and then I hope that we're going to be doing <clears throat> in October a panel of this kind focusing on the energy aspects of the report. But regarding energy, the report noted that the gas fields discovered in Israel's Mediterranean waters in 2009 and 2010 are large enough to supply Israel's needs for 30 years and also allow exports. The development of this gas has required the resolution of multiple problems um, relating to taxation, monopolies, the environment, exports, and other regulation. The report noted not all countries with large resources managed to benefit from them. The key to being able to attract, the key is being able to attract investment continually. Where laws and policies make resource development too hard, the resources, however valuable, remain undeveloped. And the report also highlights a point that has not received a lot of attention. Israel may have additional energy resources, perhaps even larger than the largest gas field. There have been indications to this effect, and whether any now hidden Israeli energy resources can be found and used is a question, obviously, that hinges on Israeli policies. Now, the topic for today, can Israel become a maritime power? Um, I believe I've introduced our, uh, our panel, but I do want to say uh, one addition, uh, additional word about um, Admiral Ayalon was not only the commander-in-chief of Israel's navy, he then served as the director of the Shin Bet, Israel's security service, and at the University of Haifa served as chair of the university's executive committee. And I also want to mention that Admiral Roughhead, uh, who not only headed the U.S. Navy, but is, is now serving as a distinguished military fellow 
at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to ask each of our, uh, my fellow panelists here to speak for about five minutes or so, and then we'll have some discussions amongst us, and we will go to questions and answers um, with all of you. And uh, I also want to highlight that Admiral Harev is going to have to sign off at 1245. So if you see him disappear from the screen, he's not protesting anything. He just had a prior appointment. And um, so what I'd like to do first is I'd like to ask Admiral Ayalon uh, to give us some historical perspective on Israel's interest in maritime strategy and then key reasons why sea power has grown in importance in Israel. Ami, to you. Well, thank you, thank you, Doug, and uh, I, um, I'll ask you uh, excuse for uh, staying in the shadow uh, the way I used to be during uh, almost all my life. So, uh, <laughs> uh, anyhow, I'll start with a fact that Israel is an island in, in geostrategic uh, terms. Uh, Israel is an island. Um, first of all, you have to remember something that many Israelis probably uh, don't know. Uh, 99 percent of uh, of our export and import when it comes to merchandise uh, is um, comes from the sea and uh, again uh, in the in the near future it doesn't uh, it doesn't seem to uh, uh, to change yet we don't have any naval history uh, if we if we try to understand our history, uh, we uh, we see that uh, more than 600 military campaigns were fought on this small piece of land, and we never we don't know of any naval event in uh, in our Jewish history. We never fought at sea. Probably this is why we do not have today any naval or maritime culture. And uh, you can see it uh, in, uh, in our education system. You can see it uh, in um, uh, even uh, when we try to understand uh, our priorities, when we analyze uh, the national budget. And, uh, and we uh, look around us uh, and we see, as Doug mentioned before, uh, the changing Middle East, uh, we, we see changing very rapidly, um, especially after uh, 2011, what we used to call the spring, which became a very long winter, or today probably we should, uh, we should call it uh, the events in the Middle East, um, in addition to the violence and to the instability uh, in, in most, probably uh, all uh, our neighbors, uh, we see a, a very tough and sometimes violent uh, struggle for regional dominance. Uh, the major powers uh, in our region who are looking for dominance, regional dominance, are Egypt, Turkey, and Iran. By the way, um, it probably uh, looks strange, but Saudi Arabia, with all its financial resources, and uh, its uh, spiritual 
um, importance uh, for most of the Muslims, uh, they don't see themselves as the leader of the region. And of course, uh, this, um, this um, almost struggle or, or aspiration uh, to dominate the region influence on uh, politics today. Uh, we see the tragedy in Syria, uh, and uh, to sum up uh, what was mentioned before, I think that if we want to try to understand uh, our region today, uh, it is a combination of clashes between and within civilizations, not only between civilizations. Uh, Muslims are killing each other, uh, whether um, they are fighting Shia against Sunni, Sunnis, or whether they are fighting um, uh, radicals uh, against fundamentalists or, or against pragmatists. Anyhow, um, I want to sum up with uh, just uh, one question. Why, why now? Why should we start to open the question about uh, the future maritime and naval strategy today? There are three factors. First of all, uh, the discovery of natural gas. Uh, the discovery of natural gas, uh, in, in addition um, to the uh, financial resources, um, create uh, awareness um, in, uh, in our government. Uh, I have to remind ourselves, uh, Israelis and uh, people from abroad, uh, between almost, almost 100 years ago, there was uh, a change in, uh, in the way our uh, leaders uh, saw the importance of the sea. It was during the British mandate when our uh, political leaders at that time, David Ben-Gurion, understood that in order to create the future state of Israel against the British mandate, we have to penetrate, we have to fight against the British mandate, and then uh, what we used to call the illegal penetration or illegal immigration to Israel, by the, by the way, my father came as illegal immigrant during the 30s, and it was clear to all our leaders that unless we shall sail and we shall control the sea, probably we shall not have the ability to create the state of Israel. Now we see today that external factor, like uh, the discovery of natural gas, um, by Nobel Energy and Chuva, uh, created this awareness uh, among our ministers and in the government. So this is a major factor. Um, and uh, in addition to the changing world and the changing region, we see new players. Uh, we see uh, the interest of China, the interest of India, and the revival of the interest of the Russian interest. Uh, in the Mediterranean, and this is why we believe that uh, we should try to analyze all the factors and to come up uh, with a maritime and naval strategy, of course, uh, combined with the way we see or we understand the Israeli interest and the American interest, uh, and to open this debate. Thank you very much, Ami. And now I'd like to ask uh, Shaul Chorev for his thoughts on the current strategic situation in the region. Thank you very much, Dan. First, I would like to uh, 
mentioned, to mention that there's no immediate threat from any army or any naval to the existence of Israel. From strategic point of view, the situation of Israel is very low. Then I'd like to touch uh, some topics relating to other superpowers and in the region. First, I would uh, start with Russia. Both parts and the aspiring great power revived the Soviet era flotilla, which includes significant force of 10 to 15 vessels. Moscow announced that it would be sending aircraft carrier in two months. The deployments Russia's comebacks as a regional power and supports its revolution in Russia. Moscow also used the Eastern Mediterranean to show off technological capabilities. On December 8, 2015, the Rostovan Don in the Mediterranean was the first ever Russian submarine to launch an operational cruise missile by submerged when it was fired target in Syria. Then I went to the United States. The United States offered a response of by deploying for the first time in years two carriers, Truman and Eisenhower, in the region for some weeks in the summer of 2016. In the meantime, China continues its slow maritime rise in the region and is the route leading to it. Beijing strengthens civil and naval presence by buying, building, and operating port facilities in Greece, Israel, Egypt, and the last few years. China is opening its first ever naval overseas naval station in Djibouti. This moves part of Beijing's ambitious New Silk Road vision. China maritime action in the region allow its also to signal that it accepts the responsibility of a rising world. Then I would add to the asymmetric world. States also face challenges for sub-states armed groups. Back in 2006 in Lebanon, Hezbollah damaged an Israeli coverage, killing four sailors when it effectively fired a sea 802 missile at Israeli flagship covert INS Khalid. In recent years, Islamist group attacked merchant ships in the Suez Canal and Egyptian naval vessels on the Mediterranean coast. A central NATO official expressed concern earlier this year that a threat will evolve in the central Mediterranean following the expansion of ISIS in Libya. The discovery of the offshore gas beginning in the late 1990s raised the stakes for Egypt, Israel, Cyprus, and Turkey, and possibly other regional actors. Because regional actors have more at stake, they are also building their naval capabilities, including power project capabilities. In 2016, Israel received its fixed out of a six sub German built diesel submarine. A year earlier, it signed a deal with the TKM German shipyard 
to purchase four multitask covers. In June, we achieved delivery of the French built Mistral class landing helicopter dock and is expected to receive second one by the fall. Egypt also began this year local construction of first after four French designed Gawind Corvettes. Purchased marine helicopters from Russia commissioned a missile missile covert donated to it by Russia and the French plus French Italian frigate. Egypt also took delivery of two American fast missile boats during the summer of 2015, completing an order of four. I should mention that from uh, orientation, you can see a change in orientation in the procurement of the Egyptian Navy from Russia or ex-Soviet US and now to European Russia mixed fleet but not a U.S. fleet. Similarly, the Turkish Navy continued the expansion of its power projection capabilities. In April 2016, Ankara opened an overseas military base in Qatar, which will include naval units. The Turkish shipyard began in May the construction of a landing helicopter dock to be completed by 2021. The Turkish president hinted that his country will move to construct a full-fledged carrier in the next region. More both regional navies, both reach and implied opportunities. One, the risks side, growing naval power enhances the chance that an escalating regional conflict can turn violent. Turkish self-confidence on the seas, for example, can lead Ankara to take an even position more assertive over Cyprus gas prospecting. Regional actors can also affect Gary powers by forcing them into conflicts they would rather avoid. More effective navies also create opportunities. They can serve as allies. After all, three strong regional navies, Egypt, Turkey and Israel have solid, though at times strained, relations with the United States. As such, they can offer compensation of sorts to the limited presence of U.S. Navy in the region. Even if not French allies to the United States on the waters, some of the regional powers, notably Israel and Turkey, surely share American concerns over the increased presence of Russian Syrian coast. This is a first round for cooperation. The increased capabilities, the expanded reach of the Egyptian, Turkish, and Israel navies, coupled with the Russian presence in the region and Chinese ambitions, all create a more complex environment. If Washington plays this new interaction of maritime regional great game well, it is much to benefit. However, being able to rebuild trust and exploit the potential benefits of the relationship with regional states, Washington needs to signal that the Middle Eastern remains a high priority. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shaul. Um, 
the uh, everybody should understand that Israel is seven hours ahead of us. So our our uh, Israeli colleagues are doing this from home, and you hear some domestic <laughs> noises in the background, and that's. I think that adds some charm to the proceedings. Um, and I would like to ask uh, Gary Ruffhead to give a U.S. perspective on the uh, strategic situation in the in the Eastern Med. So if, if you don't mind, then by I'll, all means, I'll just stand and stretch my legs a bit. <clears throat> I'm pleased that the domestic noises were more pleasant than what you'd hear in my home. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'm, I'm very, very pleased to be here with you this afternoon, and I was particularly uh, pleased to be part of the commission that uh, took a look at, at the issues that Doug uh, outlined in his opening remarks. I uh, would just like to add that it was an extraordinarily thoughtful group of people who came together. Uh, I would say that the discussions that we had were very strategic and very forward-looking. And I would also submit that those discussions had a much broader view of security than what I think uh, we in the U.S. Uh, are engaged in today. Uh, the U.S. perspective, as Doug introduced my role to be, uh, I would just add that these are the perspectives of, of a U.S. citizen um, they are not that of the government. I'm no longer in the government, nor are they those of any organization with which I'm affiliated. But they're based on my perspective of having spent my life in the Navy, much of the time in the region that we are talking about, and also uh, of having lived uh, as a young boy and man in the Middle East and growing up in the oil fields uh, of the Middle East. And so I, I, I continue to have a very strong interest in this. I would say that in the U.S. today, there is a, a clear absence of strategic discourse on the Middle East. We have images of Syria and of Afghanistan and of terrorism uh, that, that, that tend to impact the American public. But those images and actions as a result of them are not really woven into a strategic discourse and a strategic vision. Uh, we see the, the Middle East primarily in the United States through the lens of terrorism. We question, as recently as this week, the worthiness of uh, partners who have been with us uh, over the long haul there. Uh, we have fallen into, in many cases, a rhetoric of weariness uh, that tends to foster a move toward isolationism. Uh, and that, that idea that we can be alone in the world, particularly as we look at the Middle East, that is largely seen by the American public as a place of energy and oil, uh, now that we enjoy a self-sufficiency uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, I think really allows us to take a more narrow view of, of, of the region. And the other area that has been pointed out, and Shaul referred to it in his remarks, is that uh, as a result of much of this, we have essentially ceded the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, at least from a maritime perspective, to others. Uh, our presence there is minimal. It normally consists of ships 
that are passing through on their way to what I would call the Middle East proper. Uh, we do have uh, ships that are stationed in uh, Spain to support ballistic missile responsibilities. But the presence that was predictable, that was credible, uh, that many of us recall from decades past is essentially uh, gone. Uh, that said, uh, and as Shoal also mentioned, other countries see that region very differently. Uh, clearly, you know, we can talk about Turkey and Egypt and some of the other uh, countries in the Eastern Med. But I would, I would uh, say that some of the more significant naval powers are beginning to see uh, that area, that region, as hugely important. Uh, the one that I have spent a great deal of my time uh, focused on and thinking about is China. Uh, China has a strategy that clearly has shifted uh, the view toward the maritime domain. Uh, and if you read that strategy that came out in 2015, it's very short. I highly recommend it to you. Um, can be found on the web. Uh, clearly uh, states that the maritime domain uh, will now uh, be a prominent point of focus for them. But importantly with China, it's more than just security. The one belt, one road, uh, whether it's the, the, the uh, maritime Silk Road, or the Silk Road economic belt that comes through Central Europe, uh, couples an economic strategy with a security strategy. It also uh, takes advantage of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, that was created some time ago that can fuel the types of projects that can cause countries to align themselves more closely with China. Uh, China's view is also on the energy needs that it will have for the foreseeable future that come out of the Middle East. And, um, and, and it has made a significant departure just in the last year by declaring that it will establish a base in Djibouti. Uh, heretofore, that was not part of, of uh, the Chinese strategy or at least the acknowledged strategy. But now there's a system of, of, of ports and bases that support the Maritime Silk Road, a component of the One Belt, One Road. And so what all of that does is it gives China much more flexibility as it comes through what I refer to as the Indo-Pacific region into the Indian Ocean. The base in the Red Sea uh, can look north to the Suez Canal, south to the Straits of uh, Bab el-Mandeb, and, and it really puts it in a very strategic position. Uh, no different than our view. We have a base in Djibouti as well. But this really gives China much more flexibility and much more predictability. If you look at India, uh, they're very comfortable and they firmly believe that the ocean to the south of their great country uh, is aptly named the Indian Ocean. And they are very dependent on those sea lanes as well for energy, for the goods and resources that move in and out of their country. Uh, their interest in Africa. And so they're going to be very keyed on, on the interest as well. And of course, as a strategic competitor of China, that sets up for some very interesting events in the coming years. Uh, a new player on the scene in the region uh, as a result of some legislative changes is Japan, a strategic competitor of China, a country growing, growing closer to India, it too will begin to operate and, and, and make sure that its energy flows and the resource flows and its influence in the Middle East is preserved. And of course, Russia 
coming back onto the scene, I would say, unlike the other countries that I mentioned, comes back on without the significant economic component of the previous three. Uh, it doesn't have the economic heft because of the condition of, of its economy. But its activities in Syria show that it will play very heavily in a military sense. And I would go so far as to say that what we saw in Syria clearly helped uh, their Syrian ally, but it also showcased to the world the military reach and the military power uh, that China or that Russia wants to um, be known for. And when you can wage a war in Syria from the Caspian Sea, that is a quite a demonstration of the reach that one will have. Um, and I would also submit that, that Russia will also look to Iran uh, as a way to influence that region. And that brings me to Iran, a country that sees itself as the power in the Middle East, a country that will be in the forefront uh, of the Shia-Sunni uh, conflict that is taking place. And the lifting of the sanctions on Iran will provide more resources with which it will be able to build up its military. Uh, and yes, the Revolutionary uh, uh, Guard Navy will get some of those resources. But I also believe that what we will see is the recapitalization of the Navy proper in Iran to where it will be able to control the access to the Persian Gulf. It will begin to operate more robustly in the North Arabian Sea, and it will begin to operate up into the Red Sea. And so what does that do? That completely surrounds uh, Saudi Arabia on three sides, the Gulf, North Arabian Sea, Red Sea. And then if you take their ally, Syria, now that puts them uh, in, a, in a position that is really quite influential. So I, st I, I think we'll continue to see that. I really do believe that we'll see a China-Russia-Iranian level of cooperation as it works the region strategically. But I also think that we will see India and Japan working that region strategically. So um, I have dogs too, but those aren't me. Um, so, you know, what I saw as, as the great benefit of, of the report is um, the, the thoughtful and what I would consider very practical recommendations uh, for joint research and cooperation with the uh, Research Center for Maritime Strategy at the University of Haifa. If you look in the report, you can see some things that we think are worthy of starting out with, and I think that will be very uh, positive. And clearly, it will foster a more cooperative and coherent thinking between the U.S. and Israel on some of these significant maritime issues. I think for the U.S., it really has the opportunity to open the aperture for us. As I mentioned in the beginning of my remarks, I think we're kind of too narrowly looking at things. And the approach that, that the Research Center has taken is much broader. I think it will cause us to focus more critically on the Eastern Mediterranean and the changes that are taking place there. It will provide a stimulant to look at issues and topics beyond those of the day and to view security not just only in military terms but in terms of economics, energy, technology, the environment, 
and geography. And I think that's sorely needed in our thinking today. And it will cause the U.S. to have to deal with the questions not only of capability, which we focus on all the time about the newest airplane or the newest submarine, and really start to get serious about the, the, the major factor of capacity, the number of things that you need to be able to do things and influence in that broader reason, region. And so I think we're going to see, as a result of this report, some very realistic thinking on what we in the U.S. must do to influence events in our favor uh, in a region where the significant powers have now come to play. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. I want to say that I, I totally reciprocate the, uh, the sense that it was a, a great honor to work with, uh, with you, Gary, and, and uh, all of our, our fellow commissioners. It really was a, an excellent group. And I'll just say a word. The, the group was put together precisely because we wanted people with a range of policy views. So there, are, there were people on the left, people on the right. There were Democrats and Republicans in the United States. There were, we had uh, businessmen. We had former military officials, civilian officials, and the like. And the idea was this was a group of people who, if you talked about policy, would vigorously disagree amongst themselves. And we purposefully said that it would be valuable to get people who disagree about policy to address these issues at the strategic level and find an enormous amount of important common ground. So at a time when everybody's talking about how horrible political polarization is, I think it's really significant that we were able to get people who are in fact politically and ideologically diverse to come together and find really significant common ground at the strategic level for addressing these uh, these issues of economics and military matters and and uh, and politics in the in the eastern Mediterranean region and uh, uh, one of our fellow commissioners is Seth Cropsey and um, and I'd like to ask Seth to offer some of his observations uh, that could be used by whatever the next incoming administration is. Um, please. Thanks, Doug. Uh, Gary mentioned um, things to start out with, and those are things that uh, ideas and subjects uh, that a we think a future administration would benefit from taking a look at it. And, um, but how it does that is open to question. Um, the study the commission, that resulted in the commission report on U.S.-Israeli strategic cooperation in the Eastern Mediterranean um, demonstrates the role that think tanks and universities can play in strategic thinking. Governments have to deal with a couple of issues at a minimum. Um, in broad, uh, to, to classify them broadly, uh, they divide into emergencies and crises, um, and the other stuff, which is only extremely important, 
um, almost always they address the crisis. Uh, that requires creating plans, sometimes temporary partnerships um, to respond to the crises. This expediency uh, relegates to an inferior position the extremely important priorities, for example, long-term alliances, strategic relationships, and strategy itself. Economists uh, call this the crowding out effect. You know, for example, when steadily increasing interest rates generate a sustained drop in private investment that's enough to depress the total investment spending in the country. Well, a similar phenomenon exists often in government's uh, conduct of national security. So the displacement of what is only extremely important um, by crises, which cannot be ignored, is exacerbated in the Middle East, which is a region that you probably don't need me to tell you is in constant turmoil. The toxic cocktail of radical Islamism, uh, domestic instability, economic and de demographic crisis, and um, to a certain extent international miscalculation had already overflowed its cup when the Arab Spring began. The mixture turned into revolution and civil war from 2011 onward. Uh, Syria, Libya, Iraq, and Yemen are all in the midst of some kind of civil war. And these include multiple non-state, secular, and religious groups and foreign forces. ISIS attacks and public butcheries, along with a persistent migrant crisis and uh, an unsuccessful Turkish coup that Erdogan has used to eradicate political opposition, have further, further muddied the waters. So American leaders are required to respond to various conflicts, um, but the large scope of the current crises makes it easier for policymakers to overlook long-term interests. Um, for example, what are we doing about China strategically? Admiral Ruffett was correctly mentioning that. The importance of maintaining the U.S.-Israeli partnership can be lost in the clatter of negotiating with Russia, for example, about the war in Syria. But such long-term relationships as that of the U.S. and Israel are critical to both nations' interest in managing current crises and building a region that is safer, freer, and more prosperous. Now, thinking about these questions is requisite to acting sensibly and purposefully to answer them. Research institutions and universities are the two natural choices for such reflection. By working with current and former government officials to produce sensible options, academic institutions and think tanks can provide administrations, both here and in Israel, with ideas that address major strategic issues that would otherwise be ignored in the press of daily events. And I think the Commission report is a very good example of that. The cooperative effort of Haifa University and Hudson produced a number of recommendations for future research and discussion, 
Um, I'll mention a couple and conclude my remarks. The revitalization of the U.S. Sixth Fleet that Gary Ruffhead mentioned a moment ago figures prominently in the Commission report suggestions. Uh, I'm not going to repeat what uh, the Admiral had to say about the current state of the Sixth Fleet. Um, it used to have two aircraft carriers and large marine units deployed in the region. The U.S. and Israel have large sub substantive interests in the Eastern Mediterranean's maritime security, but strategy, uh, resources, and a significant presence remain over the horizon. How can the U.S., Israel, and other friendly states in the region improve security in the Eastern Mediterranean? What options exist to forward base U.S. naval force in Israel? And how would they benefit both nations? How can the U.S. and Israel work more closely together to improve awareness of security as well as such other related maritime interests as meteorological, economic, and environmental factors. Iran, for example, is likely to use its newfound resources to increase its naval presence in the region. How will it be deterred, or if need be, defeated? Both the U.S. and Israel possess good strategic thinkers. Neither has articulated a maritime strategy to deter future potential regional adversaries. Strong, present, Sixth Fleet and a strong Israeli Navy serve the shared interest of both states. Greater cooperation on this front will allow both states to maximize limited resources and achieve joint strategic objectives. Israel's relationship with Russia should also figure prominently in discussions, future discussions. Russian ambitions not only in Syria could pose a threat to Israeli security, but Russia has also shown a willingness to work with Israel on economic and security issues, for example. What sort of flexibility could Israel's relationship with Russia afford the United States? How do the strategic objectives of the U.S. and Russia contrast with one another? Russia benefits from regional and international instability that drives up the price of energy. The U.S. does not. How is this likely to affect Russia's increasing presence in the Middle East? The failed coup this past July is another reminder that Turkey is an actor of consequence for the U.S. and Israel in the region. How can both countries, the U.S. and Israel, manage their relationship with an increasingly assertive and avowedly Islamist Erdogan. Must Turkey be viewed as a threat? Or can it be returned to the broader Western partnership? How can Israel and the United States maximize the relationship with the Gulf Arab monarchies? Iran's rise has become so significant that Saudi Arabia has begun to turn toward Israel. What's the best way for Israel and the U.S. to cooperate, this, to approach this potential partnership? Will the Saudi Arabian Navy, for example, become a target for Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps in the same way 
that the IRGC has been provoking U.S. Navy ships in the Persian Gulf? And what, if any, options and or opportunities does this offer Israel and the U.S.? Does the JCPOA, our agreement with Iran, and anticipated revenue increases indicating a change in overall Iranian maritime strategy? What does that agreement's lifting of sanctions that have prevented Iran from importing useful military technology mean for Iran's future capabilities? So these are all questions here. More broadly and in conclusion, what's the proper role for Israel in the Eastern Mediterranean security architecture? The current Middle Eastern crisis crises have demonstrated the need for a more comprehensive strategy spanning all of Southern Europe, North Africa, Middle East itself. Israel's part in this stability system is currently unclear, and without more explicit answers, American and Israeli policy sails in shallow waters, shoal waters. How can Israel best sharpen its ability to craft an effective maritime strategy? So offering ideas, uh, options, policy recommendations to assist policymakers in Jerusalem and Washington is worth the effort. Hudson Institute and the University of Haifa's collaboration can, and I hope, will play an important role by continuing the dialogue which has already begun. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Seth. Um, we have a little bit of a discussion uh, among the panelists going. I'd, I'd be interested in particular if our Israeli colleagues, and I'm happy to see that Shoal Horev is, is still able to participate. I, I'm sure your time is running is running out. But before you go, if if you could, um, if you and Ami Ilon could comment on. Whether you think there really are prospects for the Israelis to take maritime strategy more seriously, and what, and one of the things I'd also be interested in, uh, Ami in particular commenting on is the point that Seth Cropsey ended with: the relationship of organizations like uh, think tanks and universities to the military is quite different in Israel from in the United States. And I know that Ami has made some very interesting remarks about that and the the question of whether the Israeli military could benefit from the work of private institutions the way the US military often does. Anyway, if, if, Shaul, if you could start by, by uh, telling us what you think the prospects are for Israel to actually take maritime strategy more seriously. First of all, thank you very much. I'm coming from the government establishment. And uh, our problem is uh, it's not uh, this administration or next administration. It's a bipartisan problem. That I think because what I'm explaining, people in Israel are more used to the army, more used to the air force, more used to the state of Israel land and uh, with the territory that we have 
They are not used to deal with all these marine and I think that the first step is to give introduction to our leaders, whether in the government, whether in the opposition, and also with high-ranking uh, uh, people in the administration about the importance of the sea. Everybody is exposed to the figures. What does it mean? The gas resources that we found in Mediterranean. But I think that they are not going through the interpretation why it uh, transformed Israel from being a state in the region uh, relying on the import of uh, oil and fuel, a state that can export. Another comment before leaving and going to my friend at wedding, uh, daughter wedding. Uh, intentionally, we didn't uh, uh, deal and the goal of Adel. And I think that uh, this was not the mandate of the of the Commission, but I think that we can't ignore it. Uh, the figures are that uh, this year, the export of Israel to the Far East, India, China, is more than the export to the EU. And uh, if you are speaking about economical growth and the wealth of Israel, we should tackle also this issue, besides other issues relating to this region. I think that this is It is a region with the choke points, Baden-Mandeb and the Strait of Hormoz, and Israel should examine that we have interest there. So the committee was limited by its mandate to the Eastern Mediterranean, but I think that we this we can't uh, disconnect this uh, uh, maritime strategy with an issue deal with the Red Sea and what is the importance of the Red Sea in the Gulf of Aden to the security, not to the defense, to the security and the wealth of Israel. So I would like once again to thank you, Dan, and to thank the Commission member. For me, it was a very uh, challenging opportunity to work with all of you and to uh, thank you also for organizing this panel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shaul. Thank you, Shaul, very much. Ami, um, I, I would be interested in your comments on, on uh, anything that you want to raise, but in particular, as I said, this question of, of the opportunities to per, perhaps encourage the Israeli military to look to the kind of... Uh, assistance they can get from the private sector more on the model of the way the American military deals with uh, universities and think tanks? Uh, thank you uh, <clears throat> for everything and especially for the question. Um, the idea uh, that um, we believe in that um, the way uh, to the decision makers uh, should be uh, should be directly, you have to understand that uh, there is a great opportunity uh, by using the fact uh, that uh, the sea or any maritime uh, issues um, have no ownership. Uh, no, no one owns the sea in Israel. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this is why we don't have a maritime and naval strategy. But on the other hand, uh, we know today 
that uh, many uh, many ministries uh, without, uh, within our government uh, are looking for answers, um, and um, and they will not get any answer um, by by trying to ask the question uh, or to see uh, whether the question is uh, within the military when it comes to the sea. So um, uh, Shaul is not uh, is not uh, is not here with us now, but I can tell you that um, since Shaul was uh, under uh, directly our, uh, under the supervision, the command of our prime minister, uh, and he was uh, the uh, the CEO of our um, committee for um, um, atomic energy. And, and he was responsible uh, during the last 15 years uh, for the build-up of our submarine flotilla. So this is exactly the case in which uh, it was not initiated by our Navy. The Navy will operate the submarines, but the submarines were the result. It is a result of a decision that were made by uh, by our prime ministers during the last 15 years. I'm saying it because the vacuum creates the answers. It is obvious uh, to our um, ministers today that they will have to look for answers and for uh, creating this uh, new policy. And this is why it is so important uh, to come up with uh, this commission and with this report and um, let me add just uh, one sentence that uh, the way to do it, and I'm sure that uh, within uh, the American administration is uh, something very similar, uh, is to approach directly uh, from the prime minister uh, and to bring all the ministers uh, to the University of Haifa. Um, they will see the level of research they will see the ideas that we are will come with, and um, again, um, I believe that there is a huge, huge opportunity for us to introduce this concept that in America, you know, for many years, that um, the, the research institutions uh, are working with some universities and with administration in Israel. Uh, it is still uh, a a kind of a new phenomenon. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Gary, what, one of the things that um, the, uh, one of the reporters who um, wrote about the commission report uh, had in, in his article was a statement that as the United States has radically diminished the capabilities and presence of the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean, uh, we now would want to look to Israel to help as best they could, you know, substitute for some of those capabilities. I don't know if that's the right or a reasonable formulation of the problem, but how, how, do you, how would you look at the question of how realistic is it that the United States is going to repair the problems created by the diminution in our sea power? 
And what role might U.S.-Israeli cooperation actually play in that? I mean, is it realistic to think that a country as small as Israel is going to be in a position to, to in any significant way, augment you know, capabilities that we need in the region? Yeah, uh, the first thing I would say, at least from my experience, <clears throat> is um, that when you talk about the Israeli Navy, and even though it you know, may be small relative to ours, the quality, the professionalism, the ethos that runs through that Navy is absolutely extraordinary, and, and it is uh, ex extraordinarily compatible with, uh, with that of the United States. And, and I, I believe the, the uh, opportunity that this initiative sets forth is how do you best meld those capabilities together? How do you um, use unique characteristics of, uh, of the Israeli Navy uh, to deal with many of the security issues there? How, how then do you fold in U.S. naval capabilities? Um, and, and I think the other thing that is important today uh, as opposed to maybe 10 or 20 years ago, is the ability that we now have to sense the maritime domain under, on, and above the ocean is far greater than it ever has been. And there's no question that Israeli technology is among the best in the world. So how can you bring those capabilities to bear that gives you a better sense of what's happening? Because so much of, of what happens in... in uh, warfare and just in the course of military operations is based on having confidence in knowing what's out there and what other people are doing. And so I think how you bring those capabilities together, and this is not just a military and military issue. Uh, I see it as an opportunity for industry um, to come together and look at how can we take advantage of, of the high technology that both of our countries are very comfortable with, are very involved in developing and advancing, how can you bring that together? And, and I'm not saying that, you know, the world is going to be solved by this burst of awareness and technology, uh, but I think that, that this idea of sensing under, on, and above is hugely important, particularly uh, with Israel as it looks to an offshore energy source. Um, the, the challenges there are not just what is running around on the surface of the ocean, but how do you know what's happening and how can you use uh, some technology to make up for some of the, the capacity shortfalls? And again, I caution uh, that technology is not the panacea for capacity shortfalls. Numbers matter and militaries are what they buy and the numbers of things that they buy. But this work that we can do can give decision makers in both countries a better idea of where should the investments be made, where can the investments be cooperative, and how do we do it in a way uh, that, we, that we both gain uh, from looking into the future and capitalizing on the strengths of both countries. Do you want to add anything, Seth? No. The idea occurred to me. Um, there, the Israeli Navy's uh, professionalism, as Gary said, is extremely high. Um, and their intelligence capabilities um, are not bad either. Um, at the same time, uh, as far as vessels, things that 
float and submerge and whatnot. Um, the Israeli Navy complements ours in a sort of interesting way, in a fortuitous way, and that is to say that we're good at things that they don't have, and they're good at things that we have been struggling to get for a long time, specifically small, small craft that are very um, combat useful, um, very lethal. And we've been working on that problem for a while, and an answer has eluded us so far. It hasn't eluded the Israelis. The, the old-fashioned story about the Israeli helicopter pilot who got lost somewhere um, in the eastern Mediterranean when we had a larger um, uh, carrier presence there and landed and made an emergency landing on the uh, on the ship's deck applies, which is uh, that uh, the Marines came up and you know demanded to know well, what are you doing here? This is a, in the Israeli. Helicopter pilot responded, he says, I'm sorry, I thought this was one of ours. <laughs> uh, they, they, don't, they don't have those, but we do. <laughs> right. Um, actually, your reference to small crafts uh, brings to mind a deeply disturbing incident in the last few weeks about the Iranian small craft challenges to the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf. And just before we go to the audience for questions, I'd be interested first in asking Ami Ayalon, what, what is your sense of that incident? I mean, what, what do you think the Iranians were doing? What, what was their point in the in their kind of fast boat challenges of uh, of our craft, and if you want to comment on how you think people throughout the region looked at the uh, at those encounters, uh, I'd be very interested in that. Ami, do we still have you on? No, that was a. Oh, well, I guess we. Anyway, I was going to. I was going to after Ami comment. I was going to turn to you, Gary, and ask, uh, what do you make of those challenges? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, you know, I've um, commanded ships in the in the Persian Gulf, uh, and, and I looked a lot younger when I did that. Um, but that was going on then as well. So, uh, and I know it's very newsworthy. It is bothersome. Uh, it shouldn't uh, be uh, a practice of the guard to do that. But this is not new, and and I think it uh, it's it's a a means for Iran to test uh, the reactions of of the U.S. Uh, I would also say that um, when I would see many of those small IRGCN, uh, Iran Revolutionary Guard Navy boats running around, um, I was not always sure, uh, you know, how um, uh, dedicated they were and what the lines of, of command were, which always makes it very unpredictable. 
and you get out in situations like that, is it is it a, a, a lone actor uh, or is is this a test? And so I think that it, it is um, something that has been going on for a long time. I would submit that uh, the professionalism of our crews um, is also uh, on display there. I mean, it's very easy when you see one of these small boats coming in to just blow it out of the water. Um, and, and we have the capability to do that. But it's a question of, you know, how does this fit in the broader scheme of things? What's the intelligence telling you? I, I would say, however, that one of the, the concerns that I have is the Guard is very active in the Gulf, and, and, and it was back in 2010, I believe, when the Iranians decided that they would give the Guard the Gulf, and then the Navy would take everything outside of the Gulf. So I don't think that's going to change. But as Iran continues to work more closely with Syria, uh, what does that portend for the maritime environment? And will you begin to see some of those similar tactics, or will there be some Navy Guard? Because I think we are all in agreement that there are Revolutionary Guard units in the Levant. But now will that translate into some naval capability moving there? Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, as we look at some of the considerations for the future, you know, what what should be being done about that, and 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 how do you deal with those uh, different types of tactics that are being used by the guard as opposed to a traditional navy? Um, we also send a political signal by uh, silence or near silence in the face of those challenges and provocations. That didn't always, that was not always the case in the past. The government would say, this is not good. They ended the marshmallow or an old tomato or something or other and say, this is uh, unacceptable behavior and that hasn't been forthcoming. Or that there are consequences in other areas. And I think that that is something that's important. Um, let me just check, is Ami Island still connected? Yes, but not to us. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I, I, what I'd like to do is call on um, some people in our audience here to pose questions. Please wait till the microphone comes, and then if you could uh, identify yourself and your institutional affiliation, uh, I would appreciate it. Let's start with Mr. Amite here. Maury Amate, various affiliations. Very parochial question. When was the last port visit by the Sixth Fleet to Haifa? And it seems to me that uh, there hasn't been one in a while. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm retired. I don't keep track of daily movements and where ships are. Um, I, I, I can't answer that question. Uh, but I do believe uh, that it's important uh, to continue that, but part of the problem, um, in when you when you say you know why aren't there more port visits? As I mentioned in my comments, much of the naval U.S. naval activity in the Sixth Fleet area of operations, which is the Mediterranean, is passing through to get to the Middle East proper. So it comes down to again, I come back to this issue of capacity. 
um, you know, and how many ships do you have that are operating routinely in the eastern Mediterranean where they can make port visits to Haifa and to other places and other countries that are important um, the, uh, where, where the American flag is, is seen flying. But I can't answer that question. Anyway, in our report, we have uh, what I consider to be a rather stunning um, uh, point of, uh, on our Sixth Fleet, and that is for the ships that are permanently assigned to the Sixth Fleet, as opposed to those that Admiral Ruffhead was just saying get assigned to the Sixth Fleet when they're in transit through the region, right? For those that are permanently, if that's the right term, assigned to the Sixth Fleet, here's the total inventory. There is one command ship in Italy, based in Italy, and there are four Aegis destroyers based in Rota, Spain, which is on the Atlantic side of Gibraltar. That's it. That's the Sixth Fleet. And their ballistic missile, they're there for ballistic missile. Right. The Aegis, the Aegis uh, destroyers are uh, essentially ballistic missile defense uh, platforms. But that's it. And then, you know, as ships transit the Mediterranean, they, they are uh, assigned to the Sixth Fleet for the, for the period of transit. But otherwise, that's the permanent structure of the Sixth Fleet. One command ship in the Mediterranean and four just outside the Mediterranean. I think that's a pretty stunning, that's a pretty stunning uh, statistic or observation. And, um, and so when, uh, you know, it might be worth, since this is such an enormously important point, it might be worth your just explaining in a, in a few sentences this distinction that you made a few times between um, capability and capacity. Right. Uh, and I apologize that this is the this distinction between capability and capacity is something that that I tend to uh, focus on quite a bit. And and I think what we have we meeting in the U.S. have become very fixated on is the capability. Um, you know, can we knock down a ballistic missile? Yes, we can. Uh, can we uh, 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 detect and track other country submarines? Yes, we can. Do we have in the U.S. inventory, entering the U.S. inventory, the world's premier uh, fighter aircraft? Yes, we have that. But when you look at the world in which we're living today, where uh, uh, disorder and, and um, testing of U.S. resolve is spread so widely, numbers matter. We talked about the gap that exists in the Mediterranean, uh, and particularly the eastern Mediterranean. Um, but we have great challenges that are taking place in, in and around the Persian Gulf, uh, we have naval assets that are operating in support of combat operations in Afghanistan. I think one of the things that many people are not aware of is that one-third of the support uh, aircraft that flew in support of our ground troops in Afghanistan came off of aircraft carriers. 
very long flights into the into that combat area and then back out again and oh by the way then we move a little farther east and and you have the challenges in the South China Sea and then the East China Sea and so it's great that we have the most capable ships submarines and aircraft in the world but when you look at all those geographic challenges and how widely dispersed it is that gets you into the question of numbers and and unfortunately the dialogue that we have today in the US is well you have X number of ships and it always sounds like a lot but if you want to have a ship in the South China Sea in order to have that ship in the South China Sea all the time you have to have four because there's one there there's one that has just left there's one that's getting ready to come and if you want those investments to be able to be useful over the 30-year lifespan every once in a while you have to put it in the shop and you have to upgrade it and you have to do things to it and so that's one ship in the South China Sea so there's four so you want another one in the in the Persian Gulf four more you want another one in the Eastern Mediterranean four more you want something up in the Baltics because Putin is making noise up there that's four more so you now have four ships on station and I never like to do public math but I think that those examples I said that's 16 ships so this number that seems very very large to most people extravagant to many really is just a practical mathematical problem of what do you have to have to be present in these various places where we have interests and if you're not there my view is you don't have the influence that you need and I think one one point one point that I'd like to add to that is one commonly hears from critics of of defense spending that the United States spends more on defense or has more capability than the next you know X number of countries in the world combined and the suggestion is that if if we exceed the capability of the second third fourth fifth sixth you know down to whatever number of countries next then then there's no problem because if we got into a quarrel we could always win under those circumstances it's we have so much more capacity than any enemy but that's an as if you paid attention to what Admiral Ruffhead was just saying you realize why that's the wrong way to look at this we do have much more capacity than any other country in the world but we also have more responsibilities more activities than any other country in the world there is no other country in the world that looks after freedom of navigation and and other crucial interests in the Baltic in the Mediterranean in the Indian Ocean in the uh, in the Pacific and so the next time you hear we have you know so much greater than any list of other countries the issue is is not that the issue is do you have enough capability to do everything you need to do in all the relevant theaters and that's really I think the proper measure of whether you're spending properly and uh, anyway, I just think that it's uh, important to kind of call attention to what I think is a, a very common red herring that a lot of people find persuasive, but it's really not 
it's not the right way to look at the at the issue. I think Seth has done a lot of work on that. I think. Yeah, and it, one other point to add here that's, and that is that the four, if the four ships that Harry was talking about are, turn out to be aircraft carriers, then multiplying times four, as you did correctly, and got Thank sixteen. One, for example, in the Western Pacific, and one in the Persian Gulf, and perhaps one in the Mediterranean, and one in the northern part of Europe. Right? Uh, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Um, one of them is, how many carriers do we actually have? And the answer to that is ten, going on eleven at some point in the next year or two, we hope. And the other is, um, if the worst happens in, for example, the South China Sea, is a single carrier going to be enough? Um, and I don't want to turn this into a depressing meeting here, but I'll leave that to your own imagination. My answer to that is no. Ms. Bryan? Shoshana Bryan, Jewish Policy Center. Too late, Seth, it's already depressing. You've actually made the case, not can Israel become a maritime power, but Israel must become a maritime power to defend its interests in the Mediterranean. But nobody discussed assets from NATO. I know they are small, but they are there. So it seems to me that if we want a Western maritime presence, it's not going to be the United States. To some extent, it may be Israel in the Eastern side. What's the NATO position and how much help do we get? I, I think the um, the issues that that we just talked about with regard to U.S. capacity, um, the challenge for NATO is almost exponential. If you look at the investments that they have made in in what I would call uh, out of area capability, it really has been diminishing, and the debate is raging now about our countries in NATO paying enough. I think that's um, significant. I would also say that that's a, that's a significant issue. Um, no, they're not. But also, what has happened in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, that has put tremendous pressure on NATO maritime forces is the refugee flows. And, and so, um, where you might be able to use some of those naval units to do uh, uh, activities in the Eastern Med, they are consumed with what they're doing. And they still have the same issue of how do you, you know, keep these rotations going? And that's going to be a significant challenge. And then as I look at some of the recent news where uh, the EU is now talking about having its own force, now you begin to dilute that again. And, and then, of course, the politics of the EU and the politics of NATO come into play. And so the long answer to your question, I apologize for at length, is that that uh, NATO, I believe, is is in the same, if not a, a more uh, dire situation. The gentleman here, Jacob Stoyle, Center for Naval Analysis. Um, I guess I have two linked questions. The first is with the kind of as was identified by I think uh, Ami the growth of Hezbollah's area denial capabilities in a maritime sense and possibly similar capabilities being developed by ISIS in Sinai. To what extent does that 
kind of change the maritime picture in the eastern Mediterranean, especially in terms of capabilities, what kind of capabilities Israel should be investing in and can be investing in. And then the link question kind of falling on on the NATO is given that Israel has not always had the best relationship with all of our NATO partners, especially, say, Turkey, what possibility does exist for greater integration and kind of greater partnership taking into account the broader political picture? You want to start on the first? Well, the broad political picture would be greatly improved if, uh, at the risk of stating the obvious, uh, relations at the senior levels between the Israeli and the American government were better than they had been over the past seven years and eight months. So, um, but the possibilities for cooperation are um, are excellent, as I pointed out, and as I'm roughly. He was asking about cooperation between Israel and Turkey. Oh, if I understood your between question Israel correctly. Turkey. No. No. I don't know the uh, exact number. I have a list. I should know the number. But um, as, as you know, the Erdogan, Erdogan has made the maximum possible use of the attempted coup, the failed coup, um, to remove people who were secular or who were not Islamist or who in some way or other annoyed him. Um, and. Uh, so Turkey is drifting, uh, continuing to drift away from uh, serious consideration as a NATO member. I mean, NATO is supposed to be a, an, a, an alliance composed of democracies. Um, if uh, you're able to replace elected, democratically elected mayors, 28 of them all in one day, um, and close institutions um, and imprison uh, journalists willy-nilly, um, what kind of a democracy are you? Uh, Turkey could not pass the, today, could not pass the requirements for entrance into the Partnership for Peace, which is a predecessor to becoming a new NATO member. So um, I think its future in NATO if not in doubt now, will be in doubt eventually. Um, and that doesn't uh, preclude some sort of greater in co cooperation with Israel or return to a strategic understanding of some kind or another. But Erdogan is an unknown, and his, uh, his general direction is, doesn't indicate uh, strategic cooperation with Israel. You know, I, I think you know you can look at the the events of the day and the conditions of the day, and I think Seth, you know, wrapped it up very nicely. But I think one of the benefits of the work that we did and the potential work of the of, of uh, uh, Hudson and, and uh, University of Haifa is how does that calculus change if the Israeli energy sources now become a source of energy for Europe? And I would submit that changes things a lot. 
and how NATO and European countries would would seek to cooperate and work more closely with with Israel and countries that were part of that um, that that linkage of energy flows uh, going in and supplying a, a, and and I would submit having a more um, reliable energy source than what Europe is currently using. So, uh, you know, I think as, as, as we look to the future and particularly the work that can be done uh, with this uh, consortium is to begin to think about the security implications that then stem from uh, decisions that are being made with respect to energy and how that then can 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 bind countries together in ways that um, that that heretofore have not been possible. In fact, in the paper today, is the deal between Israel and Jordan energy deal, and and so you know that's a significant change, not without bumps and not without pros and cons, but I think that that's what the beauty of of this initiative is in my mind. It allows us to look at the future and the alternatives that are out there and say, okay, what's the art of the possible and how? what are the best ways of moving forward in a cooperative way? And I, I, that's what I find very interesting. And one of the things we've seen with Turkey, which is, I think, remarkable, <clears throat> is a series of drastic zigs and zags strategically over the last several years. I mean, it's dizzying when you think of how of how Erdogan made a you know a special effort to essentially destroy the relationship between Turkey and Israel that had been built up in an extremely friendly way, especially between the militaries. <clears throat> there was an enormous tourist trade. There were economic ties. Uh, important military ties, and he and, and Erdogan, you know, consciously undid them. And then he had a, a, a whole series of other policies that uh, he wound up having to reverse in, in uh, regarding intervention in Syria and relations with Russia. And then you had that the incident where you know he's cooperating with Putin, and they were working together on various things, including Iran. And then all of a sudden, he's fighting with Putin, and the and the Russians are downing the uh, the the Turks are downing the Russian aircraft over Syria. And at that point, the, Erdogan decides to reach out to the Israelis, and they just entered into a diplomatic reconciliation arrangement. And now, as Gary Ruffhead points out, there is a question, an important economic question in the area, are the Turks going to become the, uh, the terminal for an Israeli gas pipeline from their offshore uh, Mediterranean gas fields, so that the Israelis would then be um, an important supplier to Turkey, which would have among its benefits a uh, relief for the Turks from their current large reliance on Russia for gas supplies. And so, I mean, this is an extremely strange and, and volatile picture that's been created in recent years 
you know, over and above all the extremely important points that Seth was making about about Turkey's changing its domestic politics, its domestic political institutions in a totally anti-democratic authoritarian direction. And anyway, I mean, Turkey is a gigantic question mark in lots of respects. And it used to be one of the most reliable countries from an American perspective. And it's not reliable in any important respect anymore. Um, but it's, it's also not monotonically heading off in a particular direction. It's zigging and zagging. And, uh, and so anyway, I think all of that needs to be taken into account if you're trying to, to look into the future uh, with regard to challenges and opportunities. I mean, Turkey is, a, as I said, is a really big, is just a really big uh, factor of volatility in the area. This gentleman here. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Stan Morgenstein, and I'm a U.S. citizen is my affiliation. Formerly Lockheed Martin, formerly Marine, etc. Um, my questions are in the context of uh, the discussion about uh, U.S. military force. Given the uh, political environment in this country, given the economic situation in this country, uh, it seems that for us to be able to uh, best protect our interests, we're going to have to rely more and more on surrogates, but surrogates who we can rely upon. You've already talked about how many of the NATO nations are not carrying their own water. We're now looking at uh, potential of adding some of the former Europe, excuse me, Soviet republics. Uh, who also, and, and this is no may meant to diminish them, it's the realities of their situation, uh, can in fact do what they need to do to protect the interests of NATO. So is it time for the U.S. to start looking at uh, realigning some of our uh, relationships in the world? For example, using our muscle to bring Israel into NATO to become the linchpin on the southeastern side of the Mediterranean, which, among other things, would put the obligation on the other NATO members to come to Israel's defense, number one. And number two, in that same context, to look at Israel as the east, excuse me, the western linchpin of a new alliance between Israel, India, Japan, and the United States which would address some of the questions associated with Iran's closure of the Persian Gulf, et cetera. I'd be interested to hear what you I'll turn to the <laughs> former undersecretary for policy on that one. And then I'll follow up. Oh, in that case, it's yours, Doug. Um, I think the idea of um, including Israel and NATO is a sensible one. Um, it doesn't mean we should proceed and have it done by tonight. Um, but I think it does mean that um, it bears examination. Um, not even if Turkey were not zigging and zagging, as Doug pointed out, um, the uh, NATO's already 
demonstrated, and I think that the Europeans and probably Americans understand that um, our security is becoming more and more involved in what's going on um, outside of Europe, specifically in the Middle East. Afghanistan is further away from Europe than Israel is. Um, so I think that that's um, the kind of question that bears study um, without uh, telegraphing the answer, but should be looked at. It's a good question. Um, uh, you know, I'm a staunch supporter of our alliance relationships, and in fact, I believe one of the issues that we face today is we haven't been talking enough about the value of those associations and relationships, and 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 that's why I think we're seeing a lot of the rhetoric uh, in play today. Uh, that said, and I tend to focus most of my time on on this Indo-Pacific region. Um, where I've spent a good part of the latter stage of my career and, and continue to interact heavily out there. Um, I'm, I, I'm not sure that the, the major players there uh, are, it's not in their interest to in, enter into formal alliance relationships. I think that the tensions that we're seeing uh, today um, where, where you have economic linkages that are are vital to some of those countries uh, and to try to overlay a, a binding security relationship on it. I, I think I'm not sure that's the case, but I do think that you can align the interests. I think you can work together uh, to achieve uh, certain outcomes. You know, there's no question in my mind India is going to be a huge player in this region and I think beyond. But uh, I do not see India ever, at least in my lifetime, entering into a formal alliance relationship with anyone. I think they're beginning to shift their, their uh, associations in ways that I, are very favorable to the U.S. and I would submit to Israel as well. So I would, I would look more at how do we work uh, you know, cooperatively with some of these other countries in ways that, that benefit us and then benefit our, our close friends. And, and I would say that we haven't entered into a, a new alliance for decades. I, I'd have to, I'd actually have to do the research to, to, you know, when was the last time, I mean, we've added countries to NATO, but we haven't actually entered into a new alliance I believe, from quite a few decades. It's an interesting question, why is that? And I think the idea after World War II that when the United States was the, the, dominant, the, the dominant power left standing after World War II, uh, that and we were heading into the Cold War, the idea that we would set up these alliances, which had a kind of organic quality, a kind of natural quality growing out of, out of the war, uh, that made sense. And it made enough sense that Congress was willing to go along with it. And uh, it reflected a moment in history. And then with those alliances, you know, we had the, the additional countries being added in Europe as circumstances changed in Europe. But 
but basically it was the same set of alliances and they were mostly based in World War II. I don't think it would be a natural, organic, uh, you know, evolution of NATO to all of a sudden take Israel in. I mean, it all of a sudden would introduce into NATO a whole set of regional considerations that are not anything that NATO has ever really thought about. I'm not sure that the Israelis would find it a particularly attractive idea. NATO is famous for its inability to make a decision. And I mean, I remember once, I think it was in the 80s, uh, sometime in the mid-80s, I think it was General Rogers, who, uh, who had been the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, making a, a kind of a joke that he's still waiting as Supreme Allied Commander in Europe for NATO guidance on what to do about the Turkish invasion of Cyprus, which was in 1974. So he was speaking, you know, well more than 10 years later when he said that. And, you know, NATO operates by consensus. It moves really slowly. NATO has not been able to achieve consensus on, it didn't, it wasn't able to achieve consensus on the Iraq war. Um, the idea that Israel, which has a very small margin for error and is very close to its enemies, the idea that they would be in, in an alliance that would require them before they take action to get some kind of understanding <laughs> within NATO about what to do, I mean, why is that in their interest? And why would we, as the United States, want? I mean, part of the thing is, I think the United States benefits from having certain countries have freedom of action so that they can do things that we don't have to endorse in advance. If they go well, we can celebrate them. If they go badly, we can repudiate them. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's a better position for the United States to be in, in many cases, than, uh, than creating formal alliances. So I, th I think that the whole idea of alliances needs to be thought through. I'm not arguing that our existing alliances are not valuable. I think they are valuable. I agree with Admiral Ruffhead that I mean, the, <coughs> there's been a major investment in them. They serve certain purposes that really you probably couldn't achieve otherwise. So they really are valuable and they deserve support as problematic as a lot of aspects of the alliance are. But that's a different question from whether you wanted to, whether you want to start creating or pursuing alliances with countries like India or Israel or other countries that actually now can provide valuable services as partners of ours on behalf of interests that we have in common with them. And this concept of partnership, which is less formal, looser, Partnership has a lot to be said for it and, and may be preferable to an alliance uh, uh, under current circumstances. Anyway, that's just a thought on that. Um, I think we're basically uh, out of time, but I want to uh, very much thank my uh, fellow panelists. I want to thank Admiral Ami Ayalon, Admiral Shaul Harev, 
for participating from Israel, and I want to thank Admiral Gary Ruffhead and my friend and colleague Seth Cropsey uh, for their superb participation in this panel and all together on the um, on this commission on the Eastern Med. And I hope that uh, that we will continue this project and we can as we do new work, meet with you uh, in the future. But thank you all for coming, and we're happy to have you here.